This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. It's late September, 1980, in Akron, Ohio. Private eye extraordinary Bill Deere is locked in the trunk of a moving car. It's cramped and dark, and gas fumes are seeping in. Now, it might sound like he's being kidnapped, but he's not. This is just another one of his clever ploys to help in the hunt for Dean Milo's killer. You might be wondering what brought him to this point. Well, you probably remember that Maggie Milo hired Bill to investigate the murder of her husband, local business tycoon Dean Milo. In her opinion, the police are dragging their feet, and she wanted the finest P.I. money could buy to speed things along. A couple of days ago, Bill met with a man called Ray Lemon. He tipped him off about a friend of his, a woman named Terry Lee King. According to Lemon, she offered him five grand to kill some rich dude, but didn't give a name. It was only after Milo's death was reported that he wondered if the tycoon had been his intended target. After listening to Lemon's information, Bill asked him to arrange a meetup with Terry Lee. Bill wants Lemon to wear a wire so that he can hear every word she says. Lemon was desperate for some of the $50,000 reward money, so agreed to help. During the short telephone conversation, Terry Lee didn't mention anything about the hit, but she did say that she was broke and asked for the loan of some money. Lemon told her he had some spare cash, and they arranged to meet for the handover the next day. Bill hoped that a face-to-face meeting might make Terry Lee more forthcoming. He wanted to be close by when the meeting went down so that he could listen in, but he needed to be out of sight. So that's how we find our private eye curled up in the trunk of Lemon's car. The car carrying Bill comes to a stop in the fast food restaurant's parking lot. Bill gropes in the darkness for the headphones that allow him to listen in to Lemon's wire. For 15 minutes, nothing happens. And then Bill hears footsteps approaching. He presses the headphones tight against his ears, anticipating hearing Terry Lee for the first time. Instead, it's a man's voice. Whoever it is claims Terry Lee is busy, but he'd make sure the money got to her. Lemon hands the cash to the mystery man, and with that, the opportunity is gone. Now, Lemon drives a little way down the road and lets Bill out of the trunk. When he gets back in the passenger seat, Bill asks who the guy was. Lemon tells him it's a man called Barry Boyd, one of Terry Lee's friends. But get this, Lemon also tells Bill that Boyd is a lawyer, and he just happens to have done some work for the Milo family. So it seems the meeting wasn't a total waste. Bill has stumbled upon a connection 
between Terry Lee and the Milos. But just what is that connection? Had one of the Milos siblings asked her to find a hitman to kill her brother? And how does Boyd fit into all of this? Bill isn't sure, but he intends to find out. In desperation, Bill convinces the police to arrest her. He reasons that if they can get her in a cell, she might start giving up some information. But Bill has to work hard to convince the DA. The private investigator knows that the evidence they have is circumstantial at the very best. All they really have is testimony from Lemon. Now, the DA is reluctant. He's worried about the press finding out about a lack of evidence and the scandal that would surely follow. Bill's equally worried about his own reputation, but can see no other way of getting to Terry Lee. It takes some convincing, but finally, the DA agrees and an arrest warrant is drawn up. If they can get Terry Lee to talk, it'll blow the case wide open. But first, they need to catch her. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we stay with celebrated private detective Bill Deere as he closes in on Dean Milo's murderer. Bill thinks Terry Lee King is the key suspect, that her capture will bring an end to the case However, it's only just the start. Bill will crisscross America and enter the orbit of a shady cast of characters with their own secrets. Each clue he uncovers will beat a path to the door of the mastermind behind the killing. From Noiser, this is the explosive conclusion to a deadly business. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. It's October 21st, 1980. Lead investigator Detective Momchilov and Bill Deere pull up outside Terry Lee's house in Medina, a city about a half hour from Akron. Momchilov and Bill walk up to the door, accompanied by local officers. Momchilov knocks on the door, gets no answer. Has Terry Lee somehow found out that the police plan to arrest her? as she skipped town. Momchilov pounds his fist against the door again. This time, there's moving inside. The door opens, revealing her boyfriend. He stares into the afternoon sun with blurry eyes and is pushed to the side. Momchilov and Bill enter the house with their guns raised. They find her standing in the corner of the bedroom. She's naked. Her hair is a mess, and there's heavy bags under her eyes. One of the female deputies is called to watch while Terry Lee pulls on some clothes. When she dresses, Momchilov arrests her for the murder of Dean Milo. 
Now, during the hours that follow, a team of officers take turns interviewing Terry Lee. Each time a new officer walks into the room, she glares at him and resumes her stony silence. This continues for a couple of days. Bill still believes she'll break, but they're quickly running out of time. Her trial date is set for mid-December. Bill now has just over a month to extract a confession or to find hard evidence that she was involved in Milo's death. If he doesn't get it, Terry Lee's gonna walk free. After another week of getting nowhere, he's hit with a different problem. He's summoned to the headquarters of the Milo business. Has he ruffled some feathers by linking Boyd and Terry Lee? Do the Milo family think that Bill suspects them of being involved in their brother's death? Bill walks into the Milo Barber and Beauty Supply Corporation building. The company's changed a lot in the wake of Dean Milo's death. Now, if you'll recall, Milo fired his brother and sister, Fred and Sophie, from the company a year before his murder. Just a few months following their brother's death, Fred is president and Sophie Milo's husband, Lonnie Curtis, is the newly appointed vice president. Hmm, everyone involved seemed to have done pretty well following Dean Milo's murder. The private eyes called into Curtis's office. The new VP asks for a progress report on the investigation. Bill tells him it's ongoing and that he's unwilling to share any details until he has concrete answers. Curtis is furious. After all, it may technically be Milo's widow that Bill's working for, but the Milo company is paying the private detective's bills, and yet they're not allowed to know how the case is progressing No, no, that's just not going to do. After some discussion, Bill's told that his services are no longer required. All right, now, doesn't that decision strike you as just a little bit strange? I mean, why would the family of the murdered man want the investigation into his death stopped? Of course, I mean, you know, they could just be unhappy with the way he conducts his business. Or maybe they want to hire someone else. Or maybe, just maybe, their motives are more sinister. Despite being fired, Bill plans to carry on. He may not have the Milo's backing, but he still has Maggie's. She agrees to keep paying him out of her own purse. Plus, the $50,000 reward she put up is encouraging people to get in touch with the private detective. Bill's about to receive a visit from a man that'll change everything. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's November 29th, 1980. There's a knock on Bill's hotel room door in Akron. He opens it to find a man who introduces himself as William Shear. Bill invites him in. After some gentle encouragement, Shear explains that he's known Terry Lee for years. At the beginning of June, she offered him $10,000 to kill some businessman. She hadn't said a name. But Shear thinks it might have been Milo. He turned down the offer. Oh, sure, he was hard up for money, but he wasn't desperate enough to kill someone. Terry Lee didn't seem to mind and told him she'd find someone else. Now, this sounds pretty similar to the story Lemon told, doesn't it? Anyway, when Shear saw Terry Lee a couple of weeks later, she told him the job was done, that a mutual friend called Tom Mitchell was the gunman. Mitchell had left town in a hurry the day after Milo's death was reported. He'd gone to Texas, and now Shear knew why. To lay low. Shear asks about the reward money and looks expectantly at the private detective, who shakes his head. The information's good, but not $50,000 good. So Bill has a proposition. If Shear wants all the money, he has to get Mitchell to confess to the murder on tape. A couple of days later, in early December, Bill, Momchaloff, and Shear touch down in Dallas. They rent a car and drive to a hotel near to where Mitchell lives. With a plan in place, Detective Momchaloff helps Shear with the wire he'll be wearing under his shirt. Then, they drive to Mitchell's home. Bill's hiding in the trunk again. Headphones on. The car comes to a stop in front of Mitchell's house. Mitchell's surprised to see his old friends in Texas. He invites Shear in, and the two share a drink. However, Mitchell's good mood sours when Shear brings up the Milo killing. Mitchell's adamant that he'd had nothing to do with it and is furious at Shear for accusing him. He admits that Terry Lee offered him 10 grand to kill Milo, but he refused. He was about to start working construction in Texas, and the timing of Milo's death as he was leaving Ohio was nothing more than a coincidence. Shear pushes him for more details. Mitchell tells him that he almost agreed but chickened out at the last minute. He says that Terry Lee's lawyer friend, Boyd, came to his house with a package. Inside were pictures of Milo, a map showing where he lived, and information about his schedule. Boyd told him to burn it once he'd made his decision. Instinctively, Bill believes Mitchell's innocent. However... His testimony against Terry Lee and Barry Boyd 
could be vital in solving the case. Under Bill's instructions, the local police arrest Mitchell, and he's taken back to Ohio for an official interview. A couple of days later, the prosecutor in charge of the case meets with Terry Lee. He tells her he has two sworn testimonies against her, Mitchell's and Lemon's. A life sentence behind bars looks likely. However, he offers her a deal. He knows she didn't pull the trigger. If she tells him who did, she'll only do four years in prison. Terry Lee consults with her lawyer. It doesn't take long for her to reach a decision. The deal's just too good to refuse. After more than a month locked away, Terry Lee's finally ready to talk. Bill and Momchaloff sit opposite Terry Lee in the interview room in Akron's police station. She looks defeated. So she says that she was at Barry Boyd's house one afternoon. It's not clear how they know each other. Boyd had represented some of Terry Lee's friends in legal cases. So maybe they came into contact then. Either way, it seems like a pretty unlikely friendship, right? Anyway, Boyd was talking about some guy he knew who wanted a greedy businessman dead. Apparently, a lot of people would profit from his death. Terry Lee told Boyd that she knew some people who were pretty hard up for some cash and might just want in on the hit. That's when she went to Lemon, Shear, and Mitchell and told them about the opportunity. Once she'd made the introductions, she let Boyd handle the logistics. So, it seems Terry Lee was nothing but a middleman, caught up in the affairs of rich folk. She simply saw the whole scheme as an opportunity for an easy payday. If she's telling the truth, Barry Boyd is about to find himself in a world of trouble. It's late when they finish talking, but an application for the arrest of the lawyer is already underway. It's December 12th, 1980. Bill's tired after the late night interview with Terry Lee, but the adrenaline of closing the case is pulling him through another early morning alarm. He makes his way to the police headquarters and is in Momchaloff's office when a call comes into the station. It's Boyd's girlfriend. She sounds hysterical. She tells Momchaloff that Boyd's behavior over the past few weeks has been strange. He's been drinking heavily. He's at her place now, and he has a gun. Bill, Momchaloff, and a fleet of officers rush to Boyd's girlfriend's home in Cleveland. Momchaloff orders the officers to block any escape routes and to have their weapons ready. Then, Momchaloff, Bill, and some officers walk up the path and knock on the door. His girlfriend opens it, and the men enter the house. Boyd is standing at the top of the stairs, swaying haphazardly. He's clearly drunk, and his speech is slurred. He doesn't put up a fight. They apprehend him easily. Momchaloff reads him his rights, and he's led to the waiting cop car. When they get to the station in Akron, 
It's clear. Boyd's in no state to be interviewed. He's thrown into a cell to sleep it off. While they wait, Bill prepares his interview questions. He's only got one shot at this, and he knows he has to make it count. The next day, Boyd sits in a chair opposite Momchaloff and Bill. The prosecutor has offered him a deal. Tell the police everything he knows, and he'll be allowed to plead guilty to a lesser charge. Bill asks the question everyone wants to know the answer to. Who killed Dean Milo? This is the moment Bill's been waiting for. After months of legwork, of chasing down leads, of being away from home, the truth is about to be revealed. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today, but when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Boyd takes a breath and says, It was Fred Milo. Then... He tells him how it all came about. He goes something like this. On January 19th, 1980, Fred Milo came to Boyd's house. This was uncommon, but not unusual. I mean, after all, Boyd and Fred were old college buddies. And occasionally, Fred used Boyd's law firm for his business matters. Fred was furious at his brother for ousting him from his own company. So he marched up and down the room, ranting and raving, and then he came out with the reason for his unannounced visit. He wanted his brother killed, and he wanted Boyd to find someone to do it. Now, at first, Boyd thought it was just some sort of prank. But in the months that followed, Fred was relentless, like a dog with a bone. He'd call most days to find out if Boyd was making progress. Had he found anyone yet? Was it going to happen soon? That's when Boyd realized that Fred was deadly serious. So, feeling a strange sense of loyalty to his old friend, Boyd approached Terry Lee. He asked her to find someone who would be willing to kill. And she put him in touch with a few people but no one would do it. Now Fred Milo grew impatient with Boyd's efforts. He decided to take matters into his own hands. Fred contacted someone in Columbus called Ray Sessick, who would handle things from now on. Okay, so you might remember Sessick's name from episode one. 
He was a guy who Milo fired for spreading company secrets and is one of the men Maggie Milo pointed to as a possible suspect. Sussex told Fred Milo he'd act as a middleman and that a hitman would be found in no time at all. Sussex called the other man who Milo fired, Tony Riddle, who was now living in Arizona. Between them, they found a guy who agreed to do the shooting. Bill sits back in his chair, astounded. He thought that the capture of Boyd would be the thing to end this case, that it'd be all tied up in a nice, neat bow. But now it seems the web's even more tangled than he could have imagined. After several months of interviews, Bill finally learns the name of the gunman from one of the men implicated by Boyd. He's called David Harden. He's a drifter who has crisscrossed the United States, racking up crime after crime. Recently, he'd been running his mouth about killing some guy in Ohio. Bill manages to locate Harden. It turns out he's bedbound in Cincinnati General Hospital, being treated for hepatitis. Bill thinks it's time to pay him a visit, but he doesn't plan on waiting until visiting hours. It's 3 p.m. on May 2nd, 1981. Bill's standing outside Harden's hospital room. He's dressed like a doctor and has a stethoscope dangling around his neck. He nods at the waiting police officers and pushes the door open. There are two men in the hospital room, Harden and another patient. Bill approaches the man first. He's needed downstairs for a checkup. Two nurses enter and wheel the patient's bed out of the room. Now, Bill can focus his attention on Harden and Harden alone. It's the first time he sees the man believed to be Milo's killer. Harden has blonde hair and green eyes. He also has a number of tattoos and some of his front teeth are missing. Bill asks Harden how he's feeling. But before he can answer, Bill clamps one hand around Harden's throat. Harden barely has time to figure out what's happening before the ward door bursts open. Half a dozen officers enter, their guns pointed directly at the suspected hitman. Bill handcuffs him to the bed, and the arrest is made. Has Bill finally got his man? Is this the arrest that's going to end the case? Or... Is Harden going to point the finger at someone else? It's a couple days later. Harden sits in a jail cell. He's been told that if he cooperates and his story helps put Fred Milo away, he'll receive a more lenient sentence. Harden nods. He knows the deal's a good one. So begins his confession. In July 1980, Harden was approached about the job. He was poor, and the promise of a lot of money was too good to turn down, so he accepted. He and an accomplice traveled to Akron and laid low. Now, Milo was out of town and wouldn't be back for a couple of days, 
They spent their time in the hotel going through the plan and drinking heavily. Finally, on August 10th, they were told that Milo was back in Akron. Under cover of darkness, they drove to Milo's home. Hardin got out of the car and walked to the door with the 32 automatic in his hand. He knocked, and he said that he had a telegram for Mr. Dean Milo. As soon as Milo opened the door, Hardin overpowered him and forced him to the floor. He shot Hardin once with a makeshift silencer attached to the barrel of the gun. The silencer malfunctioned, so he got rid of it. Instead, he grabbed a nearby cushion and placed it over Milo's head and shot again. Blood spread from the body, and Hardin knew that Milo was dead. He ran for the car and told the driver to get the hell out of there. Bill knows the story should be enough to convince the jury of Fred's guilt. However, Fred has one of the finest lawyers in the country at his disposal. Will Hardin's confession work? Or will Fred Milo find some way to escape justice for what he's done? Almost three months later, on July 29, 1981, Hardin takes the stand at Fred Milo's trial. After a lengthy court case where Fred tried to plead insanity, Hardin and Boyd's testimonies convinced the jury. They find Fred guilty of murder in the first degree. Fred Milo is sentenced to life in prison. In the years that follow, a number of other players in the case are rounded up. Bill even learns that a $10,000 contract had been put out on his own head by one of the men involved. In all, 11 people are arrested and sentenced. It's a record in Ohio for the most indictments in a single case. Yeah, turns out everyone really did want Dean Milo dead. In Bill Deere's book on the case, Please Don't Kill Me, he describes the moment as bittersweet. As the verdicts are read out, he notices Maggie Milo sitting alone, crying. When Momchalov congratulates him, Bill looks at Dean Milo's weeping widow and says, but it wasn't any fun, was it? Thanks to news coverage, Bill's already legendary reputation continues to grow. In 1988, he and Momchalov received prestigious medals at a ceremony in Ohio in recognition of their fine work on the case. Bill is the first ever private investigator to be honored in such a way by the American Police Hall of Fame. It's a fitting reward for the man the media called America's James Bond. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, we head down under for a truly bizarre case involving a shark, an arm, and a tattoo. It all begins in 1935 at a beachfront aquarium in Sydney when one of the captive sharks vomits up 
a severed arm. The arm's identified through its distinctive tattoo as belonging to a missing billiard hall manager called Jim Smith. The quietly dogged Detective Sergeant Matthews of Sydney Central Intelligence Bureau leads the team investigating. What makes his job even harder is that the victim was known to him. For D.S. Matthews, this is personal. Was Jim Smith the victim of a shark attack or something more sinister? Find out in part one of The Arm and the Shark in the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep. Sleep.